last week as we continued in our, in our series that we were in all summer long, Practical Prayers. We examined uh, one prayer of David that is very significant, very well known uh, to most, if not all of you. And we, we talked about the, the need for confession, for real and true confession, what that looks like, why that's necessary. And, and the goal with all of these prayers we're looking at is to practically apply what we read and what we are considering in these Old Testament prayers to our lives today. And there are certainly many things that we can draw out of that, and uh, confession is certainly one of them. But we also need to focus on what it looks like to offer prayers of worship, prayers of praise. And thankfully, David gives us many, many of those to choose from. Uh, I think that probably the most magnificent of his prayers of praise, this is my own opinion, this is personal opinion, is Psalm 139. And that's what we're going to look at today as we consider this amazing prayer of worship and this second prayer of David along in, uh, with our, our other prayers in this series that we're examining. So we'll be in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll wrap up by jumping ahead to the closing verses 23 and 24. Starting off with Psalm 139, 1 through 16. And you can divide up this amazing prayer in, in pretty clear categories. And the first area of a focus as we break down this prayer is going to be on God's omniscience, the fact that He is all-knowing. He knows everything. There's literally nothing He doesn't know intimately in very, very small detail. But what I really want you to see is that this, God, this omniscience of God, this all-knowing aspect of our God, is a very personal thing. Though He knows everything, He also makes sure that He knows everything about you and about me. And the God who knows everything about every aspect of the universe stoops low and he draws near to you and to me. And he knows us intimately. So this all-knowing God, it's a very personal aspect. And we're going to see that as we look at these verses. So verses 1 through 6 really frame this aspect of God, his omniscience, and again, the stress is on the fact that this is a personal thing. Verse 1. This is all from the CSB, by the way, the Christian Standard Bible. Verse 1. David prays this. This is a personal prayer from David. And he says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Lord. The word Lord there, it's the word Yahweh, it's the personal name of God. Yahweh, it contains all that He is. It's His eternal nature. It's His self-reliance, His self-existent aspect. It's His character, it's His love, His mercy, His grace, His justice, His holiness, His righteousness. It's everything that God is contained in this one name, this personal name, Yahweh. It's the name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush when Moses said, okay, I'll, I'll go, but who am I supposed to say sent me? I mean, they'll ask, where did you get this from? What God are you talking about? What am I supposed to say? And he said, I am. Tell them I am sent you. And I am is the word Yahweh. 
It's that personal name of God that points to all of his attributes, all of his characteristics. So the fact that this eternal, mighty, perfect, really unknowable God, at least in his in fullness, it's impossible to know him fully or completely. This God, David says rightly, you have searched me and known me. You know all about everything in the universe. All there is to know is known by you. You've searched every corner of creation, and yet you've searched me and you've known me. The word David used for searched here, it means to thoroughly explore or to, to bore down. Think about boring a hole into something, you know, and digging deep or extracting something. That's the word here. And so David is saying, God, you, you have searched down to my core. You have explored every corner of my being. There's nothing left out from your sight as it relates to me. There's nothing that you don't know about me. And depending on where you are with God, that can be one of two things. That can either cause you great alarm and great fear and great anxiety, maybe even resentment. If you don't know God yourself, to, to, think of, to think of Him knowing you that intimately, that's a scary thing. But if you know God personally through Jesus Christ, if He is your Father, then that should fill you with great great encouragement, with a sense of awe, with a sense of gratitude and appreciation that should fill you with a sense of comfort and joy that even if no one else knows you, even if nobody gets you, God does. God does. He knows you intimately and personally. And that should also amaze you that though he knows you that way, that he still wants anything to do with you. That should amaze you and cause you to praise, just as it did with David. He continues, verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. So you know whatever I'm doing. Doesn't it doesn't matter what context I'm in. You know all about it. You know all of my activities. You know my, my goings. You know everything I'm doing. You know every detail. You're with me and all of that. And you understand, you perceive, you discern my thoughts from far away. The way this phrase is literally structured and worded in the original Hebrew is you understand my thoughts and intentions at their source before I'm aware of them. In other words, before I even think my thoughts, you, God, know where they came from and what's behind them. And again, that can be a scary thought or that can be a really good and an amazing thought. It should, regardless though, cause us to pause and to realize that means we can't fool God. We can fool a lot of people. In fact, there's, there's times where we are able to fool everyone. Uh, we can even fool ourselves. But we're not going to be able to fool God. He knows not just what we're thinking, but He knows why we're thinking it. He knows the reason for it. He knows the intentions that we have in our thoughts. He knows the motivations. He knows 
where our thoughts are coming from and why we even have them to begin with. Which means He is uniquely qualified to be able to convict us and to call us out on what we're thinking and to correct our thinking. We need to be aware of that as we come before God. As we try to communicate to Him and we, we bring our requests before Him and we, we uh, come before Him with our minds and our hearts, we need to be aware of this fact that He already knew our thoughts before we did. So it should cause us to be careful. Let's continue. Verse 3. David is in his prayer. He says, you observe. That's, that's to look closely. That's carefully discerning. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue. So not only do you not, are you aware of of what I'm thinking, not only do you, you not have to wait for me to think it before you know it, but before a word is on my tongue. You know all about it, Lord. That can also be a, a rather scary thought. Uh, something to, to consider and pause at, that we need to be very careful about what we say, not just what we think, but what we say. Both go together, right? What we, what we say comes from what we think. What we think sometimes should not be what we say. Both of those things God is aware of. Before we think it, He knows what we're going to think, and before we say it, He knows what we're going to say. There is no one like God. Would you agree with that? There is no one like God. This, this goes beyond God simply being aware of what we're going to say before we actually speak. Of course He does that, right? He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So of course He's aware of what we are going to say, but it goes more beyond that. This is more than that. This means He knows what we mean by what we're going to say. He knows the motive behind what we're going to say. He knows the reality of it. Whether it's true or false, whether it's sincere or hypocritical, we can all talk a really good game. We really can. Super easy to do that, right? We know what people want to hear, and we can tell them exactly what we know they want to hear us say. Whether it's true or not, whether we mean it or not, whether it's sincere we can, we can talk as if we know all about something and have no clue. We can talk as if we believe something really passionately and firmly, but then go out and live in a way totally contradictory to that. So we can say all the right things and still be in all the wrong places. But God, He doesn't just know what we're going to say. He knows the reality of it, what's behind it. And we need to come to Him accordingly, church. We need to come to Him accordingly, keep that in mind, and live in light of that. Verse 5. You have encircled. That's surrounded me on all sides. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means you've hemmed me in or you've tucked me in. What a thought. You've hemmed me in, you've tucked me in, you've surrounded me on all sides. Often this is a phrase that refers to like a military engagement, you know, where the enemy has encircled someone. But this is a, this is a good thing. This is God in His love and His care and His, His mercy and His provision encircling us. 
David says, you have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. Think about that. The hands that stretched out the entire universe. The hands that framed the stars. The hands that put the clouds in the sky and the the waters on the earth. He has placed His hand personally. His hand of provision. His hand of care. His hand of love. His hand of mercy. You have placed your hand on me, David says. My fellow believer, for us today, this means that like David, we can easily see the care and presence of God in every part of our life. Past, present, and future. He's encircled us all around. Past, present, and future. We're surrounded and wrapped up, tucked in with the perfect, loving sovereignty of God. What a thought. Hallelujah for that. Praise God for that, right? You remember parents who have older children or grandparents now? You remember tucking in your your children? You remember not being able to leave the room until you tucked them in just the right way? You know, they, they wouldn't go to sleep unless you put the blankets around them in just the right way. You know, when we're young, we we like the feeling of being constricted. It's only later that we want independence and freedom. God, in in the most loving way, despite Him being who He is and us being who we are, tucks us in with His care, with His love, with His provision, with His guidance. Incredible. Incredible. No wonder then David next follows this up in his prayer by saying this, this wondrous knowledge, all that he has said up to this point, the fact that before a thought is in his mind, God knows it. Before a word is on his tongue, he knows it. That he observes all of his ways, knowing when he sits and when he rises. The fact that he's encircled him in his care. He says in verse 6, this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. It's high. I'm unable to reach it. In other words, on my own, in my own intellect, in my own natural ability, I can't even process this. I think we could all agree with that. It is wondrous knowledge. Awe-inspiring knowledge. And it is beyond us. It is lofty. But yet it is true. It's absolute fact. All these things that David is worshiping and praising God for in this prayer, it's not just true of David. It's true of you and me. And we should join with David in this praise of this amazing God. So to summarize this part of this magnificent prayer, this omniscience of God, this personal omniscience, especially connected to to verses 1 through 4, I just want to frame it all by saying this. There's nothing unknown to God about you, and nothing He knows makes Him love you any less. That is worth getting out of bed in the morning. There's nothing unknown to God about you. We see that here in this, in this prayer, in these opening verses. Nothing unknown to God about you. 
Nothing that he has to figure out or learn about you. And yet, despite that, nothing he knows makes him love you any less. And he is the only one in all of creation that that's going to be able to be said of all the time, no matter what, for all of eternity. It's not going to be true of everyone. There's going to be people in your life, there probably already has been people in your life, that once they figured out this or that about you, they're done with you. Unfortunately, unfortunately, many of us knows what that's like and have, have experienced that. That's not ever going to be true of God. There's never going to be anything in your life that takes Him by surprise or makes Him turn away from you. Astounding. Astounding. Well, let's, let's keep going with this prayer. And the next part of these verses... We're going to see an emphasis on God's omnipresence. That's the fact that He is always everywhere, all at the same time. And again, just like with His omniscience, this is a personal thing. So He is everywhere present personally with and for you. Verses 7 through 12 frame this emphasis. Verse 7, David continues, Where can I go? To escape your spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? To answer this very hypothetical question, because of course the answer is nowhere, but to answer this very hypothetical question, David paints three very poetic, dramatic pictures to illustrate and make the point that even if it would be possible to do the following things, one would find God already there ahead of them and staying with them the whole time. So here's the hypotheticals that David presents to prove his point and to answer that obvious question. What if one could go to the farthest corner of the physical universe... Or explore the deepest recesses of the depths below the earth all the way down to the realm of the dead. What if they could do that? Well, God would be there. Verse 8. Here's here's why that's true. Here's the answer. Verse 8. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or the grave, the realm of the dead, you are there. Highest heaven, darkest depth. God is there. There is no corner of reality where God is not present. Okay, here's the next hypothetical. What if someone could rise up and fly with the sunrise in the farthest eastern end of the world and then touch down in the farthest west as the sun sets? God would be there. And he wouldn't let go. Verses 9 through 10. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. Wow. How's that for some encouragement? That there's nowhere you can go where God isn't, there's nowhere you can escape his presence even if you would want to. He's there ahead of you, whatever you face. 
Whatever you encounter, whatever you find in your life, God has already been there ahead of you in those circumstances. And He's there holding on to you while you're going through it. He's there ahead of you. He's there with you. He'll bring you through it on the other side of it. No one like our God. Third hypothetical here. What if a person could be instantly covered in absolute darkness? hidden from the view of, of everyone, every spy satellite and every other ob- tool of observance, totally shrouded in absolute darkness. God would see them as if it were high noon in the desert. Verses 11-12. through 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, And the light around me will be night. Well, verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. There's no difference with God. No difference. You know, being scared of the dark, it's not just something for kids. And of course, I don't mean just physical, literal darkness. I mean the darkness of not knowing, the darkness of the unknown that we encounter. That can be pretty scary, can't it? But because darkness and light are alike to God, here's what that means. He is never afraid of anything. Nothing is ever uncertain and unknown to Him. Nothing ever causes Him anxiety or uncertainty And therefore, He can provide in our darkness, He can provide the light of His own knowledge, the light of His own wisdom, the light of His own plan, the light of His own care and presence and glory. Every source of darkness can be invaded and overcome by the light of God. What a thought! Again, I'm going to provide you with my own kind of summary statement of what we've just considered in this section, this next section of verses. I want to encourage you by saying this. God is always with you everywhere, so you're never alone anywhere. God is always with you everywhere, believer. So you're never alone anywhere. And that, that is an encouraging reality. At least it should be, and I hope it is to you. So, we've seen God's omniscience, His personal omniscience. We've seen His omnipresence, His personal omnipresence. Now we're going to focus on His omnipotence, God's omnipotence. And again, this is personal. His personal omnipotence. That means all-powerful, all-powerful, all-sufficient, all the time. Verses 13 through 16. David prays this. For it was you who created my inward parts. Think about all the tiniest detail of the human body. It's a miraculous thing. 
No matter how advanced we get with our technology, no matter how tiny our devices, no matter how advanced our creations are, nobody can ever or will ever duplicate the advanced thing that is the human body. There are so many small things that are beyond comprehension that have to work right to make us be right. God created all those things. But it goes beyond that. It's not just the physical that David is referring to here. When he says, you've created my inward parts, that means you have made my soul, you've made my spirit, you've made my mind, you've made my intellect, you've made my will, you've made the seat of all my emotions, you've made my logic and my reasoning ability. You made every aspect of my entire being. You who created whole solar systems. You who created air. You created me. Down to the smallest detail. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Maybe some of you uh, knit. Maybe if you don't, you've had family members who do. And no offense to anybody that is not a grandparent that does this. I mean no offense, but I always associate a grandparent with that. Like my grandmother always knit, and she, she loved to do that. And there's so much involved with that. There's so much intricate detail that goes into it. And, and you need to have a lot of patience because you're, you're dealing with these, these instruments, you know, and you have to, to make just the, the tiniest thing fit together for the whole product to come out right. This speaks to God's intimate and intricate artistic detail in His creative work. And it's a very personal thing. Verse 14, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Some translations read fearfully and wonderfully. This speaks to an awe-filled, reverent response to the awesome power of God at work in His personal design of every human being. That word awesome, it, it's lost something in our modern context, hasn't it? Because we use it so much about everything. You know, like that was an awesome sunrise or sunset, and that's a pretty fitting use of that word. But we also say, man, that was an awesome TV show. That was an awesome play I just saw in that game. But what God does in His creative work, what He has done with you and me, that intricate, personal, artistic design of each one of us in our mother's womb, that certainly warrants it being called awesome. And above every other thing, but above every other description, God alone is ultimately worthy of being called awesome. He says, your works are wondrous. And I know this very well. Yeah, that's an understatement, right? In verse 15, he continues, my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed. Literally, David used the word that we would translate embroidered. Embroidered. Again, artistic, personal, purposeful, full of design and detail. When I was formed or embroidered in the depths of the earth, your eyes, no one else can say this, but your eyes, God, saw me when I was formless. 
When there was nothing physically to see, your eyes saw me and all that I was going to be and all that you were going to make me. All my days, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Mind blown, right? What this means, my fellow believer, is that God made you on purpose for His purpose. Why did God plan all of our days before there was even one day of our life? Why did He take such care to make us and plan our lives for His purposes? His divine perfect purposes. His glory. You aren't here for yourself. That's not why you were made and why you were given life and breath. You were given life and breath to glorify the one who gave you life and breath. That's your purpose. To glorify God and to know Him and love Him here and now in this world and to make Him known and then to love and worship and glorify and serve Him forever. That's why we were made. And so God personally saw us and formed us and ordained every part of our lives. God designed and planned every detail of your life from the womb to the tomb. And if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, then His plan is for you to be more than simply an image bearer. You know, an image bearer of the divine, like every other person is, saved or unsaved, That's something that's true of every human being. We're all made in the image of God. We're divine image bearers. But if you're in Christ, His plan is for for you to be more than that. His plan is for you to also bear the message of redemption and adoption, the gospel of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these verses, verses 13 through 16, they undeniably undeniably point to the fact that life really does begin at conception. There is no question. And that's when God's personal creation and care of that life begins. Conception. There's obviously a lot being said right now in our society about the moral right of abortion. No matter what changes are made in the law, society says, because they insist that a woman has the right to do as she pleases with her own body. However, this part of David's prayer, inspired by the very Spirit of God and preserved by Him in His timeless Word, clearly shows that God always sees a complete person in every mother's womb. Therefore, God's people, you and me, have a responsibility to also love and care for children, people personally created in God's image, in the womb. And... That extends all the way through to the tomb. 
Life is precious. Life is sacred. Now, having carefully considered the implications and applications of this magnificent prayer up to verse 16 anyway, I want to end by having us to consider our response to all of this. Our response. And the response that we should have is the response that David had, and it's found in verses 23 and 24. 23 and 24. David says this, and I want you to catch the tenderness of this. Search me, God. He started off the prayer by saying, you have searched me. Now he's saying, search me. Search me, God, and know my heart. At the beginning he said, you have searched me and known me. Now as he ends this prayer, he's saying, search me, God. Know me. Know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. Know my anxieties. Know my afflictions. Know my burdens. We all have them. Verse 24. See, as you search me and as you know me, see if there is any offensive way in me. That's before you. Before you, God. In your sight. He's not so much concerned about what others might find offensive. He's saying, see if there is any offensive way before you in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This request here at the end of the prayer is the continuation of the way David began it. And it's as if he's saying, you already have done this, I know, but please don't stop. Please keep searching me. Keep exploring every nook and cranny of my heart, my mind, my soul. Keep boring down deep into me. Why? Why would David pray something so earnestly, so passionately? Something that admittedly, let's be honest, is uncomfortable and unsettling. Why would he want that so desperately? Why would he be pleading with God in that way? It's because David was obviously convinced that no one, including himself, could know him the way God did. And David couldn't trust his own self-awareness. He couldn't trust his own heart. And therefore, he couldn't be led by his heart. How popular, how common, how frequent is it to say something? It's total nonsense, but it's still so prevalent to say, listen to your heart. (laughs) Oh, just listen to your heart. What's your heart tell you? Be led by your heart. No, don't do that. David would have readily agreed with Jeremiah when he wrote, and we need to agree with it too, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it or who can fully comprehend how wicked and deceitful the human heart is? Don't trust your heart. Don't listen to your heart. Don't be led by your heart. David knew that. 
He knew that. That's why he's saying, know my heart. Look down deep into it and clean it up. You're the only one who can. And that's true of us as well. This needs to be on our lips, from our heart to God as well. Oh, how beautiful and absolutely necessary this closing request in this incredible prayer from David really was. He desperately wanted to be right with God at all times. He wanted God's help to rid himself of any, any wicked thought, word, or action. And so he pleads, he pleads, look into my heart, look into my motives, look at my life completely, find all the defects, and lead me away from them. Lead me away from them and on to your eternally righteous path, God, because that's where you are. See, that's what David is really praying here. When he said, lead me in the everlasting way, he's saying, keep leading me to yourself. Lead me away from myself. Lead me away from my sin. Lead me to yourself. Lead me to your holiness. And oh, my friend, this should be the prayer of every true child of God. This should be true of you and me. This should be our heart's cry, our heart's prayer, every moment of every day. This isn't just a magnificent prayer to read and think, oh, wow, how inspiring David's words here. No, this is a prayer to apply. Every line of this should be part of our prayer. But more than that, it should be part of our life. We should live our life according to what is expressed here. So, may he help us to pray it more often. And may he help us to live the truths of this out more consistently. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your magnificent word. Thank you for leading your servant David to pray this. And then preserving this prayer in your word for us to read today and to model, to pray ourselves. May we Get this out in our own personal prayer time and pray line by line what David prayed and wrote. May we pray it to you ourselves. Thank you that what David captured of you, what he so rightly focused on and pointed to, your attributes, the fact that you are all-knowing, you are all-present, and you are all-powerful, but the fact that you are personally all-knowing and personally all-present and personally deeply all-powerful, that should just stop us in our tracks. Help us to not get over these magnificent truths. Help us to be different because of it. Help us to live for You in response. Thank You for being who You are, all that You are, and all that You do. We praise you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.